Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Oh, my God! Would you please tell him that instead of presents this year, I just want my family back. Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It must be magic. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. Nobody's walking out on this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? True, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Welcome back to Tis the Podcast, the podcast that's determined to keep the Christmas spirit alive 365 days per year and the Halloween spirit alive all throughout spooky season. I'm Anthony. I'm Julia. Tom here. Aw, you threw off our groove. Beware the groove. How's it going, y'all? It's going good. Tom's got a gigantic pumpkin in the back of his green thing today. I know. It actually looks like a very like natural background. It doesn't look right like yes. green screen right away. Yeah, it's very nice. I know it's Halloween town. Thank you. I had a good week. I took an Anthony recommendation that has been sitting in my queue for like a long time and cashed it in today in honor of spooky season. And I watched Ready or Not from a few years ago. And that movie freaking rocks, man. I loved it. It was so much fun. It was great. So thank you, Anthony. I Speaking of Anthony recommendations, I have a funny story that is going to be somewhat offensive to Anthony. So I apologize in advance. When Christine and I started Midnight Mass, she said, where did you hear about this? I was like, oh, through the Christmas Podcast Network. She said, ugh, is it an Anthony recommendation? <laughs> And I said, no, Julia recommended it, too. She said, oh, okay, I'll watch it. What has Anthony recommended that she doesn't, that, like, hasn't worked out? I'll have to ask her. We we watched something that was an Anthony, or I think it was something, some opinion Anthony had about something, and Christine got offended and said, I refuse to trust his his recommendations ever again. Was it better watch out? It was better watch out, I think. I think that was the one. Yep, I think you're right. But Midnight Mass is out of this world. Right? Yes. We need to do a Patreon or something. We need to do it soon because I need to talk about it. And y'all need to watch Squid Games. I think, I don't know. You think you don't know? I think you need to watch it. I don't know. I'm on episode six and I still don't know what I think. But I am so enthralled by Squid Games, y'all. Like... Yeah, lots of people are, apparently. I need this recording to be over because Christine is waiting downstairs to watch the next episode. We were up till (laughs) 2.30 in the morning last night watching it. Those are the best, like, when a show sucks you in that much that you stay up half the night watching it. Or when a book. Oh, I know. That's how Midnight Mass was. I'm listening to a Brandon Sanderson book. It's written for kids called Alcatraz and the Evil Librarians. And it's great. And in it, multiple times, he talks about how awful authors are and how they get sick pain from other like they, they, they get like sick joy from other people's pain. And one of the things he says is 
all authors love it when you stay up all night reading their book, knowing you have to go to work the next day. It gives us, you know, it brings us so much joy to know you're suffering. Have either of you heard of the book Several People Are Typing? I started that today and couldn't put it down. I finished it right before recording. No. Yeah, it's it's told entirely through like Slack messages. <laughs> it was like written during quarantine, during the whole work at home thing. And uh, it's really good. It's pretty funny about a slack uh, help bot that becomes self-aware and somehow switches places with the guy who was talking to it so the guy gets stuck mm-hmm. in slack and none of his co-workers believe it's him and the slack bot inherits his body it's pretty funny oh my gosh well, that's hilarious but it's been a good week what's your shirt julia what's your shirt uh owasso bands uh. because i couldn't bring myself to buy the one that said owasso band mom because one the font was hideous and two i just don't think i'm that person inside they can wear the sweatshirt that says mom on the front. You know, I don't Julia, know what that says about me. For both of those things, remind me why we're such good friends. The fact <laughs> that you won't do it over the font and you can't put mom on your on your shirt. I love it. Well, I was with Ethan and I'm like, I was really going to try, buddy, but I don't think I'm that person. He's like, you're definitely not that person. I'm like, okay, that makes me feel a little better. I did get a dad sticker, though. Dad okay, but that's a <gasps> cool sticker. That's an awesome right? one, though. If they made a band shirt that was cool that had mom on it, I would do that. For those of you who don't see it, it is a holographic Mandalorian sticker that says dad duty with him holding baby Yoda. Grogu. Speaking of the Mandalorian, they have those geeky tikis, too. Of Stop Mando it. and baby Yoda. Stop it. It's too much. It's too much. <laughs> I can't. I refuse. I, I no cabinet space for said cute mugs. To be honest, I should probably apologize to Anthony. The only reason I said Baby Yoda was so that he would correct me. I I've been doing it to troll people because there there's a subset of, of fans of Mandalorian who get re- of Star Wars who get really offended by calling him Baby Yoda. <laughs> I do not get do not get offended. My priest and a friend of mine at church and I had this long going text yesterday. Um, all about Star Wars, which was fun. Like, which one's the best? Which one's the worst? I'm curious to see when he appears in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this year, if the announcers are are geeks enough to call him Grogu, or if they'll say, and here comes Baby Yoda. I'm, I'm willing to bet they call him Baby Yoda. As oh, yeah. I'm sure they will. You know they're going to call him Baby Yoda because that's what people, that's what people, well, that's what he's marketed as now, right? Yeah. Yeah, Grogu doesn't have the same flow on the tongue. So we were talking about books earlier. Did y'all see J.K. Rowling has a new Christmas book coming out like next week? See it. I bought it. Did you know about this in advance, Julia? I did not know about this. I only know about this because of you. But like, how did I miss it? Do I feel like it didn't get like any press? I mean, I only discovered it on like (laughs) in my recommended on Amazon today. I feel like it had no press. Wild. Probably because, you know, a lot of people consider her problematic now, but yeah, the, it's called to. The Christmas Pig. It's a kid's book, chapter book, you know, about 300 pages, and it takes place on Christmas Eve. It's about a guy and his new toy pig that go on an adventure to rescue his old favorite toy, a magical adventure. So. I doubt it's, I mean, it's no another Christmas story, that's for sure. I mean, how could it be when I have people like Tom Crow and Julia Colburn doing the audio chapter? Now, Anthony's been waiting for Spooky Month, and I think Anthony's been pretty excited about tonight. You are correct, Thomas. Tonight, we are covering the 1996 satirical horror film Scream. So in case 
somehow you've evaded this movie the past 25 years. Scream follows the character of Sidney Prescott, a high school student in the fictional town of Woodsboro, California, who becomes a target of a mysterious killer in a Halloween costume known as Ghostface around the one year anniversary of the murder of her mother. Is the Ghostface mask supposed to be based on Edward Munch's The Scream? Is that what it's based on? It is. So the mask... I actually have a bit of trivia about the mask. The initial script labeled the main antagonist as a masked killer with no specifications to his appearance, forcing Wes Craven to produce a costume eventually worn by Ghostface. They ended up finding an actual Fun World design, the costume already made by a company called Fun World, but they couldn't get the rights. So they did their best to change the mask just enough to (laughs) avoid copyright infringement and use it in the film, but nothing they were able to do could match the effectiveness of the actual costume mask. So Dimension had to make a very expensive deal with Fun World to gain the rights to Father Death, as it was called back then, and they used the costume. And now it's Ghostface. Now it's just synonymous with Scream. And it's bigger than they ever could have imagined it being. Yeah, for real. You don't go a Halloween without seeing at least one person in the mask. Yeah. Initially, as well, they weren't. He wasn't going to re- wear a robe. Wes Craven just wanted the mask, and then just whatever the killer's real clothes were. But then they decided to give him a white robe, so he looked like a ghost. But then they thought on film it looked too much like Clanny? a KKK, yeah, robe costume. Uh, so they just gave him the black robe and the rest is cinematic history in terms of that look. Yeah. I always recommend people avoid a white robe, especially when you have a nearly all white cast. Nearly. I'm pretty sure they're all white in this. Yeah. I think they're all white. Don't they bring diversity in later in scream Two? Well, we're talking about this movie. This movie is all white. Wouldn't that be harder from a plot perspective? If he didn't have a robe on obscuring the clothing he was wearing on his body. I would assume so. I mean, wouldn't that make it really harder for you as a director to work around that? To, like, hide the identity, yeah. Well, yeah, because, like, in that bathroom scene where you see the boots, like, you better be darn sure I was looking at people's shoes after that scene. <laughs> right? Is that an abnormal reaction to seeing boots on a bad guy? I, I, would to- I was totally trying to. Like, there's no way you would have been able to obscure the killer's gender either. So the shapeless robes definitely helped. But for once, I would like to inform our readers that this podcast is going to be well-researched because because (laughs) I know a lot about this film. So So for those who haven't seen it, the film combines black comedy and whodunit mystery with the violence of the slasher genre to satirize the cliches of the horror movie Genre popularized by movies such as Halloween, Friday the 13th, and A Nightmare on Elm Street. At the time of its release, Scream was considered unique for featuring characters who were aware of the real-world horror films and openly discussed the tropes they were living in that the movie was attempting to subvert. Look behind you! Look behind you! Oh, you know I don't watch those. They always feature some girl who's too stupid to run out the front door and instead runs up the stairs. But... (laughs) 
<laughs> the story for Scream was partially inspired by the real-life case of the Gainesville Ripper, an American serial killer who murdered five students in Gainesville, Florida, over four days in late August of 1990. It was also inspired by Kevin Williamson's passion for horror films, most especially the original Halloween, which we're covering on the show in a few weeks' time. The script was originally titled Scary Movie, but was retitled Scream late into production, and eventually the spoof franchise that parodied this film was named Scary Movie. That stuff, now those movies are terrible. Despite the fact that the production faced censorship issues of the Motion Picture Association of America and obstacles from locals while filming on location, the film ended up receiving positive reviews, achieving financial success, and went on to become the highest grossing slasher film until the release of the 2018 requel of Halloween, though when adjusted for inflation, it still remains the highest grossing slasher of all time. Scream also marked a change in the genre as it cast already established and successful actors, which helped the movie find a wide audience, including significant female viewership. It was also credited with revitalizing the horror genre of the 90s, which was considered to be dead following an influx of direct-to-video titles and numerous sequels of the franchises of the 70s and 80s. In the years following the release of Scream and its sequels, the film franchise garnered a lot of criticism from politicians, religious associations, and various parental organizations who accused the movies of inspiring and inducing real-life acts of violence and murders, most notably the Columbine Massacre in 1997, which significantly uh, affected Scream 3. But we're not talking about that one tonight. We are talking about Scream. i sorry. It, I stand where I did almost you know 25 years ago. That's a cheap cop-out to try to blame the media for Columbine. There were so many other issues that should have been addressed. I just wish cops would work as hard. I mean, I just wish, wish our uh, legislators would work as hard keeping guns out of schools as they do masks. Okay, uh, so let's do our histories. With this movie, Julia has the shortest history, so ladies first, Julia. Um, I was obviously very aware of this movie um, ever since it came out. Um, saw parts of it nowhere near its entirety until today. Um, so I've seen it one time all the way through. That's it. That's a pretty impressive feat in 25 years. And considering like the zeitgeist that was around it, right? Because like exactly everyone knows like the ghost face costume and like it's been been so it permeated pop culture so much. It's impressive. Like I'm always impressed when I find someone who's never seen it at least one. I'm a white whale. So well done. Tom, how about you? You know, I saw this movie back in the day. I did not see it in the theaters because I thought it looked cheesy and hokey. And I was not the biggest fan of it. Some of those reasons still ring true for me today, but I overlook them and look at the movie as a whole. And I found it, you know, I found it entertaining today. So I was very young when this movie came out. I was in first grade, but even first grade, I was very aware of seeing the commercials on TV of Ghostface. And I remember that mask scaring the bejesus out of me. This was before I was into horror films at all. And I was in first grade anyway, even if I was into horror, you know, (laughs) my parents would never have let me see this. Um, Scream 2 only came out a year later, so didn't see that when it was released either. By the time Scream 3 came out in the year 2000, I was in sixth grade. And that's when a lot of my classmates started seeing it and talking about Scream 3. So... At that time, I still wasn't really into horror. I was into like the Universal monsters, but that's as scary as it got, right? Like the old school Dracula and Wolfman and things like that. But I wanted to be part of the conversation. And 
you know, I was pretty mature for my age. So my parents were like, fine, you can watch it. So they got me the whole VHS trilogy, VHS, from Suncoast Media. And uh, I had to wait till the weekend, like a Friday night to watch it because... You know, back in the day, you didn't have like a lot of TVs in the house. You know, my sister was still young. My parents had no interest in it. So I was in the basement one night on Friday night, popped in the first one. And that 10 minute Drew Barrymore scene came on that opened the film, which is still to this day, the scariest thing, in my opinion, in the whole franchise. And I noped the heck out of there. I couldn't get that VHS out, that tape out of the VCR fast enough. And I didn't revisit it for I don't know how long because it scared the crap out of me that opening scene obviously eventually I went back and watched it in full and I I loved it I love this whole franchise I don't think like if there's a list of movies I've seen most in my life the first three would fall in probably the top 10 easily the first might fall in the top five. It's just like a comfort movie to me at this point, weirdly enough. but I can see that. And uh, I will just quote Sarah as well, who thinks this is a quintessential 90s movie from the outfits to like the music choices. And I would agree with that. It's very, mm-hmm. it reeks of the 90s. So let's run through the casting credits real quick, because there are a few pretty interesting and high profile names associated with this movie. So director Wes Craven, who's obviously a horror movie master, he's known for creating the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and giving the world Freddy Krueger. Other than that, he directed all four Scream films. He directed The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes, The People Under the Stairs, and Red Eye. Wes Craven initially turned down directing Scream because he wanted to distance himself from the horror genre, but he changed his mind when Drew Barrymore agreed to appear in the film. And after being confronted by a 10-year-old fan on the street who accused him of going soft and having more guts back in the day, and that uh, shocked him back into wanting to do something scary again. Dang, that kid is ballsy. (laughs) Right? Shoot. Are you guys fans of Wes Craven in general? It's, I mean, he's the kind, kind of the king of horror, right? Well, exactly. I mean, he created one of the most iconic movie monsters of the modern day, right? Freddy Krueger. And Ghostface, who's not a movie monster, but again, one of the most iconic movie serial killers. As mentioned earlier, Kevin Williamson wrote this movie. He's created a bunch of TV shows. He did Dawson's Creek. The Vampire Diaries, The Following. He developed the screenplay for I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Faculty, and Cursed. And he did Scream 2 and Scream 4. I guess he sat off Scream 3. But this, oh. he's, ha- he's had a lot to his name. A lot of teenage-focused stuff. So, <laughs> The score was provided by Marchi Beltrami, and at the time was considered by critics as one of the most intriguing horror scores composed in years. Since its release, it's gained a cult status amongst horror movie fans. And apart from working on the screen films, Beltrami scored a lot of very well-known movies, including The Faculty, Resident Evil, The Woman in Black, A Quiet Place, Terminator 3, Live Free or Die Hard, World War Z, iRobot, Snowpiercer, 310 to Yuma, Jonah Hex, Hellboy, Wolverine, Logan, The Hurt Locker, uh, Netflix's Fear Street trilogy, and the new Venom movie that just came out. So There's some good stuff in there. Yeah, for sure. The movie stars Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker. 
She was originally cast as Sydney Prescott, the lead of this film, but she she was the one who ended up having the idea that if she played Casey, who dies in the opening scene of the movie, it would make the audience think anything could happen and anyone could die because she was arguably the most famous face in the film at the time. So Wes Craven loved that idea and decided to go with it. So where have we covered her? I know we've talked about her multiple times, but has she actually been in anything we've covered yet? I think so. I don't think so either. And like, where do you even begin with her? She was an E.T., The Wedding Singer, Fifty First Dates, Never Been Kissed, Charlie's Angels, Batman Forever, Going the Distance, Donnie Darko, Riding Cars with Boys. I know we're all fans of her, right? How so, what's not your favorite? Covered Babes in Toyland yet? I don't know. That's actually a good point. Put that on the list, Tom. I'm gonna have to. Well, I was thinking. I'm like, I know she's in a Christmas movie. So what's your favorite Drew Barrymore film? Uh, 50 First Date. 50 First Date. Mine is E.T. I love that movie so much. Uh, Ugh. E.T. I hate E.T. So be good. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to say 50 First Dates or Blended. Um, mainly because I really want to troll Anthony. And those are both Adam <laughs> Sandler movies that she did. I, I I actually love the wedding singer so and the wedding singer yeah oh and the, oh I love her in the wedding singer and I loved her yeah. in music and lyrics with um, Hugh Grant Hugh Grant that's a funny movie Never Been Kissed was a good movie I don't like Never Charlie's Angels is so I don't good. like Charlie and Charlie's Angels I didn't like it either but I do Cameron Diaz annoys me Donnie Darko was one of my favorite movies for a really long time oh then there was Firestarter. I loved her and that Netflix show she had for a while with Timothy Oliphant, uh, The Santa Clarita Diet. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> after Drew Barrymore convinced Wes Craven to give her the lesser known role in this film, he cast Nev Campbell as the final girl of the Scream franchise, Sydney Prescott. And outside of Scream, she's probably best known for Party of Five back in the 90s, Julia Salinger. She's also starred in The Craft. Wild Things, which I know was a big favorite of a lot of teenage boys growing up because she had that makeout scene with Denise Richards in the pool. She was in Drowning Mona, Panic, The Company, The Skyscraper with Dwayne The Rock Johnson from a few years ago, The Philanthropist, and House of Cards. I remember when I stopped watching that show because I thought it was way too unbelievable political move show. There was no way this kind of crazy stuff too. would happen. I got so tired of it, I had to quit watching. Well, and then Kevin Spacey <laughs> turned out to be a rapist, so that didn't help. Are you guys fans of Nev Campbell, or were you? Because you guys would have been the age, right, for something like Party of Five? Or maybe you were still a little young at that point? I was a little young for Party of Five, um, according to my mother. And probably because I was a little young for Party of Five. Um, so I don't, I don't have any history with Nev Campbell. What about you, Other than man, she was the name in them '90s years. I was never like a fan. Yeah, I was never a fan for her of hers, and I was too male for Party of Five. I loved The Craft. That's a great movie. I just never liked Nev Campbell, and in this, I mean, that was some that was some awesome, like late '80s, early '90s feathered bangs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Oh, we did cover Drew Barrymore. That's why we all think we probably did. She was a voice in all of the other reindeer. She played Olive. That's it. So there it was. We all knew it, but we couldn't put our finger on it. Somebody else we covered. Courtney Cox plays the intrepid tabloid reporter 
Gail Weathers, obviously best known in her career for playing Monica Geller on Friends. Courtney Cox approached the production to pursue the role of Gail because she was interesting in playing a, in her words, to offset her nice persona on Friends. In fact, it was because of this nice image from Friends, the producers and Wes Craven initially refused to even meet with her or consider her for the role. And she lobbied for months as she felt she could believably play the character. And obviously she ultimately succeeded. And the character of Gail has become just as synonymous with the franchise as Ghostface and Sydney, and she's become a fan favorite amongst viewers. So, I mean, she persists few through all at least them. a couple, all of them. Ooh, nice. She did a great job with the role. She did. As did the next character, who was also the, along with Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox, the persistent character through all of them. David Arquette plays Deputy Dewey Riley. And we just covered him a few weeks back in a very Muppet Christmas movie. He was the angel, right? Who sent yep. Kermit to that alternate reality. So oh, there's no need right. to run through his credits again. But he wa- it's worth noting he was considered for both the roles of Billy and Stu. But he lobbied Wes Craven to cast him as Dewey instead because the part was described as hunky and he wanted to play the hunky character and the crew was worried about having him in the role because he was a little bit of a doofus to play that character but wes appreciated the innocent oddball approach and uh, ended up giving him the part and his character is beloved by fans and as many people know this is where courtney cox and david arquette met and began to fall in love so and i think that's obvious during their scenes because they had some chemistry they did have chemistry absolutely rose mcgowan plays dewey's younger sister and sydney's best friend tatum riley um she's known for jawbreaker the doom generation grindhouse and probably most notably as paige matthews on charmed after shannon doherty left She's also a well-known activist who was instrumental in going up against Harvey Weinstein when during the Me Too movement, which, worth noting, he was one of the producers on this film. That so. I had a hard time oh. with her character in this because I realized like how young she was when this was done and how overly sexualized she is throughout the entire thing, knowing what was happening off camera. This made yeah. me sad. Legitimately, I was sad watching her in this and christine and i talked about it multiple times especially the scene she's known for going into the garage where it's very cold and yeah and it's just like it's like why it's like they're doing this to her and i say doing it to her because of we know what harvey weinstein's we know what kind of person he was and what he did to his actresses yeah i don't know it made me it made me sad it made me hard to to relate to her character in this and maybe, if, yeah, I felt very bad watching her mm-hmm. scenes, knowing yep. that relationship. Yep. Jamie Kennedy plays the character of Randy Meeks. Uh, so Jason Lee and Brecken Meyer were both considered for the role, but Kennedy was ultimately chosen by Wes Craven due to his improvisational skills and his ability to add more humor to the script on the fly. And he starred in other films such as 1996's Romeo and Juliet, Malibu's Most Wanted, Bowfinger... Finding Bliss and Good Deeds. He's also been in The Ghost Whisperer and done multiple voices on The Cleveland Show. And he also had his own hidden camera show in the early 2000s called The Jamie Kennedy Experiment. 
Yes, so. he did. That is a thing he did. <laughs> oh, he just annoyed the crud out of me. I mean, he probably has some uh, one of the more famous scenes in the movie where he's going through the rules of how to survive a horror oh, movie. Oh, absolutely. It's a great scene. Yes, it is. Skeet Ulrich plays the character of Billy Loomis and was chosen in part due to his resemblance to a young Johnny Depp in A Nightmare on Elm Street. In addition to Scream... Oh, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of horror homages and shout. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what this movie's known for, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to Scream, he starred in The Craft with Nev Campbell and in As Good As It Gets. And he's also starred in the television series Riverdale, Jericho, Jericho. and Law & Order. Jericho, that's my favorite, Skeet Ulrich. When filming Scream, he thought he was in a straight horror movie and got confused during filming the climax of the film and confronted Wes Craven about the goofiness of Matthew Lillard and Jamie Kennedy and the way they were delivering their lines, at which point Wes Craven had to explain to him that it was a satire, not a straight horror movie. Did he not read the script? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Does anyone else like automatically think a little less of Skeet Ulrich finding that out about the film now, which bums me out because I really liked him from Jericho. <laughs> I mean, he was young. Well, I'll, I'll chalk it up to young naivete. I don't know. That was it. Skeet Ulrich, adult Skeet Ulrich. Love you, guy. <laughs> young Skeet Ulrich, get a brain. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Lillard plays Stu Mocker, and he was cast in the role by chance after accompanying his then-girlfriend to an audition at the studio. Casting director Lisa Bleach saw him in the hallway and asked him to audition for the part and was impressed by his ferocity. He starred in Serial Mom, Hackers, She's All That, Summer Catch, um, Twin Peaks of Return, and he starred as Shaggy in the two live-action Scooby-Doo movies. And ever since Casey Kasem's retired from the role in 2009, he's also voiced Shaggy in animation since then as well. He is a human iteration of Shaggy. Absolutely. Like he was, I mean, whatever you want to say about yeah. those films and how bad they were, he was perfectly cast. Yeah, he totally was. He has another horror movie that I quite like. I don't know if it's good or not, but 13 Ghosts. Y'all seen that one? <gasps> oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. That's a great, scary movie. It is. And shout out to listener and friend of the show, April, because that's one of her favorite scary movies. Hey. Uh, somebody we have covered on the show before, Henry Winkler, the Fonz, plays Principal Arthur Hembry. And we've, uh, <laughs> we don't have to dive into his roles again, but he went uncredited for this film at his request because he didn't want to detract from the younger, lesser known actor. So they, he didn't want to be any credit for the film. Yeah. Because Aww, Henry Winkler can just, because Henry Winkler can just, you know, meld into the background. Right. Leave <laughs> <laughs> Liv Shriver, another person we've covered Liv Shriver has a blink and you'll miss a cameo as cotton weary, the accused murderer of Maureen Prescott and a role that becomes larger and more important in the sequel films. Uh, we've covered him before, so we don't have to get into it again. He was in Mixed Nuts, though, which Julia and I both loved, and Tom did not. Tom did not. How did you not love that movie? Just, anyway. It was not good. It was just not good. <laughs> w. Earl Brown played Kenny the Cameraman. And the final cast member worth mentioning 
is perhaps one of the most important and iconic, yet is never seen on screen, and that's Roger Jackson does a voice of Ghostface. The producers had originally intended to use his voice as a placeholder and wanted to dub it over in post-production. But Craven decided his contribution was perfect and ended up keeping it, describing it as intelligent, evil, and irreplaceable to the franchise. Craven would not let Jackson meet the rest of the cast during filming, so the cast couldn't get friendly with him or put face to the name. Whenever a character in the movie is seen talking to him on the phone, they're actually talking to him in real time, because Craven thought this would better uh, bring out the shock reactions he needed, which huh. it did. So Yeah. Who else thought Kenny the camera guy was actually Danny McBride and thought, man, he's aged well. <laughs> I can totally see it. I almost Googled it a few times. And then I was like, no, that's not him. But man, it looks like him. Such a small role, but I found it funny. Like when Gail, Gail Weathers was like, Jesus, get the camera. My name's not Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this movie starts out with what is often ranked in like as one of the scariest horror film scenes of all time. And we meet Casey Becker, home alone, making popcorn, getting ready to pawn a scary movie when she gets a phone call. What does this, who is it, Tom? Uh, just who some, calls her? Just some guy I want to talk. He's looking for a friend. Some he's, creepo. He's nice. He, even, he originally, you know, talks to her. She says wrong number and, you know, they hang up and he calls her back just because he wants to talk some more. Right. It's the beginning of a beautiful love story. <laughs> Until it isn't. When I mean, she does tell him. He he flat out asks her, do you have a boyfriend? And she says no. Which, what the heck, man? How good is that relationship if you answer no when you actually are? <laughs> Especially when your boyfriend's about to die for you. Well, she doesn't know that yet. <laughs> the call is very unnerving, but you realize something is very wrong when she says, why do you want to know my name? And he says, because I want to know who I'm looking at. Who I'm looking at. <laughs> what? <laughs> and she's like, that yeah, that's basically, that's basically her reaction. What? What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking who to. Who I'm talking to. <laughs> that's not what you said. <laughs> and True Barrymore acts the heck out of the scene, honestly. You really... Sure believe her fear and funny bit of trivia the producer that uh, west craven forgot to unplug the phone lines because he shot on location in a real house so she was dialing 911 and cops came to the set because they heard her screaming for her life into the phone and wanted to demand what the hell is going on <laughs> how ticked would you be but then kind of like guys that's pretty cool like they're filming a movie like when the movie comes out like that'd be pretty cool but like not cool in the moment yeah, you, you could be the cop who'd be like, hey, hey, I actually responded to that 911 call. <laughs> yeah, Drew Barrymore. I saved her. <laughs> yeah, so go. Uh, this anonymous voice starts ringing the doorbell, calling her, keeps calling her. And he tells her, he essentially says, if you hang up on me again, I'm going to kill your boyfriend. So I want to play a game. Well, he has her turn on the patio lights and sure enough, her boyfriend is out on the patio, tied up and gagged. Mm -hmm. And he says, you want to keep him alive? I want to play a game. And it's a horror movie trivia game, essentially. Whoosh. Who's killer in Halloween? It was a trick question. It was. This is a very popular pub trivia question. Although I'm sure in the years since Scream came out, less so. Yeah, but who yeah, is the killer in <clears throat> Friday the 13th? 
Most people, when they think of that franchise, immediately jump to Jason Voorhees, forgetting that it was his mom who was the killer in the original movie. Which, that was clever. (laughs) So you didn't know that, Julia? I'm guessing you immediately thought Jason. (laughs) Well, yeah, sure. I didn't know that. I haven't seen that movie. So he guts her boyfriend, this guy who we still don't see guts her boyfriend on the porch which was not cool and not nice and horribly messy i stand opposed to gutting of other humans at this point she says she's gonna call the police and he tells her they'll never get there in time so she just doesn't (laughs) 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 let's take that psychopath's word for it i'm not gonna do it then thanks for saving me the time (laughs) Um, and the popcorn's burning on the stove a little fire starts and she grabs a knife and she's starting to sneak through the house locking the doors when she passes a window and we get our first glimpse of the killer and what does he look like julia he's got the white and black mask on that we're so used to seeing that looks like this green plastic version of the screen he looks like the killer in everything you've ever seen for scream (laughs) <laughs> he looks like the killer that has been parodied a million times since this movie came out in films and TV shows. Exactly. Like scary movie and not another scary movie. <laughs> but I mean, that's the genius of it, right? Because that was the intent and they absolutely achieved what they set out to do. Enter into horror film. Uh, uh, canon. Royalty. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's total canon now. Then the whole movie is about what is horror canon, and it is now a part of that. Right. And it's it's a very simple costume, but it's an effective costume. Like, if you saw this guy at your window in the middle of the night, it would scare the crap out of you. So he breaks through the window, grabs her. They get in a struggle. She sneaks out of the house. He jumps out the window, and he stabs her. What makes this scene so heartbroken, though, is her parents come home. She's trying to get to them, but her throat has been slit. Yep. They, she's like in the feet, like a few in the grass a few yards away. They walk into the house and see it in disarray. Mom picks up the phone to call the police, and she hears her daughter dying on the other end of the phone, which is very chilling. And uh, just like Laurie Strode tells the kid she's babysitting in Halloween, Dad set, tells his wife, go down the street to the McKenzie's call the police and when she goes outside she screams dad comes running out and we see drew barrymore intestines hanging out hanging from a tree and it was this scene that initially got the movie an ma rating an nc-17 rating they had to speed it up for the theatrical release and not focus on it so much and uh the Weinsteins had to go and say, you have to view this movie not as a horror film, but as a comedy. And MPAA eventually relented. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's evisceration is bad in a horror context. But hey, guys, it's just a joke. <laughs> it's a comedy. Hey, come on. It was just a joke, guys. For, for all the times I've seen this movie, this opening scene still frightens me. This is a brutal opening scene to a movie. And it's very protracted and... I don't know. Every This movie made me realize when I am a homeowner, I don't want to live in the middle of nowhere because every single <laughs> single one of these houses does not have a neighbor in sight and they're all glass and like, nope, not for me. <laughs> yep. So maybe it's a slasher film thing. Maybe it's because I already knew what was going to happen to Drew Barrymore. Maybe it's because this movie's older, but this wasn't scary to me. And I think it's probably those things combined on why it wasn't scary to me. Because if you stuck me in a movie theater 
fresh when it was coming out, didn't know what was going to happen. I could definitely see how this would have been scary. Right. That makes total sense. But these are also slasher movies are not typically the movies that scare me half to death. See, they're the ones that tend to scare me more than the ones like Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, because they tend to be real psychopaths rather than the monsters. Right. Because that could actually happen when some girl is not going to climb out of her TV and like make me die for watching a a video, which is like (laughs) super high level scary to me, (laughs) like still super scary. So yeah, it's a scary movie. So we immediately cut to our protagonist alone in her bedroom on the 1990s version of the dial-up internet. <laughs> and we meet her boyfriend, Billy, who climbs through the window. And they have this conversation how he was at home watching The Exorcist on TV, but they cut out all the good parts because it was <laughs> on cable. And it reminded him of his relationship with her because they were hot and heavy until they weren't. Which, yeah, because her mom died. An idiot. Dad interrupts them, getting jammed in the door because she had this awesome closet that opened up and served as a lock against the door, which comes back into play later. Um, That was a lucky find when they were scouting locations. The script just had a lock on the door, but they found that actual house. Um, And dad said he's going out out of town for a few days. And, you know, he'll call when he gets to the Hilton or whatever. Sydney and Billy make out for a bit. She kicks him out of the room, but not before asking would he settle for a PG-13 relationship, and then she flashed him. And Wes Craven said during test screenings, he just heard the audience groan. Because in a horror movie, you would expect to see boobs, but there is no nudity uh-huh. in this movie whatsoever. Oh. And that stands true for the whole franchise. Yeah. I thought there was going to be, because 90s horror. That's a horror it's a horror trope. flick. That's yeah. right. And it's the 80s and 90s. Like, it's not... Yeah, it's 96. Like, yeah. they were throwing boobs around left and right. Yeah. One boob here. There's a, a single one there. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when Sydney arrives at school the next day? Well, like, the media is at the school. Yeah, the media is there. Everybody's talking about it. People are talking trash about her. Yeah, because sensitivity is not a thing in the 90s at all. So this is when we meet Gail Weathers, who's reporting, because it's the one-year anniversary of Maureen Prescott's murder, too. But this is when they're questioning all the kids. The cops are questioning all the kids. Like, where were you last night? And Mm -hmm. we meet Principal Hembry, and, you know, you could tell the cops have a soft spot for Sydney. They feel bad for what she's been through this past year. Not Gail. Not Gail. Gail thinks... She thinks she's making it all up. Well, she's right. As we find out later on, she's tr- she she's not making it up. Didn't make wrong. it up. She's mistaken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I mean, we know from statistics that eyewitness accounts are horribly unreliable, right? I mean that, and that's Gale, right? So she is a very like driven. I'm going to get the story. I don't care who I hurt in the process. She's she's a tabloid reporter who wants to be a real reporter. That's the sense you get from her. And there's clearly history between her and Sydney because Gail wrote the book on the murder and Sydney. And she portrays Sydney as a, as she portrays Sydney's mom as a philanderer. They use mm-hmm. other more colorful, less 2021 appropriate language to describe her. 
mm-hmm. um, because she was sleeping with Leave Schreiber. With Cotton Weary, who Sydney identified as walking out of the house in who saw somebody wearing his coat walking away from the murder scene. And Gail says, no, you saw somebody wearing the coat, but it wasn't him. And that's where these two come into conflict. Yeah, um, so she's a tabloid reporter, but she also seems like genuinely interested in getting it right, which I appreciated. So she wasn't just like out for the buzz. She was interested, obviously, in the buzz, but she also wanted to be like respected. Was she and known right. for she didn't care doing her job right? Yeah, she was getting attention, right? But she didn't want to get attention with a bad story either. Like she wanted a good story, but she also wanted the right story, which they could have done that very differently. And they chose not to. I appreciated that. Well, I, I appreciate even like, and we'll get to it. Like during the party at the end, right. When her and Dewey, she follows them to the party and she places that camera inside when her and Mm -hmm. Dewey fall off the road and on top of one another, she leans in to kiss him and not vice versa. So you see her feelings for him are genuine. She's not just using him for a scoop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That helps soften her a bit for me. It does. But Sydney is obviously freaked out by all of this. And after school, we meet her friend group. So we meet, we see her boyfriend, Billy, again. We meet Tatum mm-hmm. and her boyfriend, Stu, and mm-hmm. Randy, the fifth wheel of this group, who works at the video the store and uh they're very insensitive like yes they are guys the guys are tatum's not the guys are they're about they're joking about finding casey's liver in the mailbox and how you gut somebody while hunting and uh billy even gets annoyed at stew at this point it's like it's called tact and sydney just gets up and walks away uncomfortable and she asks to see if she could stay at Tatum's house for the next few days, because there's a murderer on the loose and her dad's out of town. So very smart. And Tatum uh-huh. says she'll pick her up after work. So we see Sydney's house alone in the hills, not a neighbor in sight. Sydney locks every door and uh, falls asleep on the couch and wakes up and it's dark and Tatum's late. And Tatum calls and says she's on her way. Sydney hangs up. There's another phone call, and Sydney thinks it's Tatum calling back, but no, it is our killer. And for somebody who is so paranoid, who's watched her, who saw her mother get killed and is scared of being alone, she is remarkably cavalier. Like she thinks it's Randy playing a joke on her. Mm Mm-hmm. She like goes out of the house and she comes to find him. She's calling him on his crap. And he asks her what her favorite scary movie is, and she says, you know, I don't watch that crap because it just features a big bosomed girl who runs up the stairs instead of at the door when you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is what she proceeds to do moments later when she realizes it's not Randy because he says, if you hang up on me, I'll kill you just like your mother. You'll die just like your mother. So she goes in the house, locks the door, and Ghostface comes out of the closet. <laughs> and, you know, I appreciated that he is not He's very fast, but he is mm-hmm. not a uh, – he's very clumsy as well, which you would expect from a teenage boy who's probably never killed anybody in his life. <laughs> like Sydney goes at him, knocks him out, uh, knocks him back. He goes chasing her up the stairs. She takes a vase and smashes it on his head, and mm-hmm. I appreciate it, all that physical stuff. 
And um, she runs right up the stairs, like she said, all the stupid girls do in horror films, because the door was locked. She couldn't get it unlocked in time, in fairness. And mm. she goes into her room, <laughs> um, jams the closet door under the bedroom door, tries to call 911, but the phone's dead. So somehow uses dial-up internet, even though the phone line's out, to, call, to dial to 911. To call 911. <laughs> was that a thing? call 911. Was like, if I go online right now and call dial 911, is that it. a real service? I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> and while she's doing this, Ghostface is just in the crack of the door, like swinging his knife around wildly. Like <laughs> with his one arm. Just like, I'm going to get you from over here. He gave it half of his go, right? He he, he was half in. He tried. He didn't want to kill her at this point. I mean, it's obvious. This, to me, when I saw it the first time, was an indicator that it was probably somebody she knew because he wasn't trying very hard to actually kill her. Not at this moment, no. no. You can tell he was frightening her at this moment. Yeah. And he, sure enough, he disappears, and Billy mm-hmm. appears in the window. <gasps> Shocking. So I must ask you at this point, Julia, are you suspecting Billy the boyfriend? Yes. Uh, Are you suspecting two killers, having not seen this movie? Yes. Yes. Why? Yeah. I'm just curious, because I don't remember the first time I saw it. He couldn't have gotten there that fast. Nope. At all. Yeah. But he was, like, super sketch about it. But initially, what I thought was happening was he was working together just to get – her to loosen up on those morals, right? Like, oh, she's oh. gonna be scared and and cuddle up to me. It'll all be okay. You know what I mean? Because nineties movie. Well, but- that <clears throat> plus, so, so that plus the fact that he's so insistent that it couldn't be me, it couldn't be me, it couldn't be me. Even when they're in the video store and people are like, "Oh, maybe it was you," and he's like, "No, maybe it was you." I don't know. He was he was just way too obvious. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was with Julia. I was like, okay, he's obviously involved, but it wasn't him at her house, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's fun, one of the fun parts for me, like I, because obviously I've seen it more over the years, trying to figure out who was wearing the costume at which points in the movie. Right. But um, she, uh, side of the times, she's hugging Billy and a cell phone drops out of his pocket. And because they were not common back then, <gasps> she immediately freaks the heck out. That's right. And decides, I'm going to take my chances out in the main house. And runs out her bedroom door, right toward the front door, which she throws open. And Ghostface is staring right at her because Deputy Dewey has found the mask and is just That's holding right. it up in front of the door. And I love Dewey as a character, how he, how when Sydney screams, he freaks out himself. Like, he's such a doofus. <laughs> I, I love him. Dewey is a doofus. They go to the police station and <laughs> where the cops are questioning billy about the cellular phone records and uh <laughs> i like your i like how you emphasize that verbiage cellular. they kept saying this whole movie is cellular phone, cellular phone. <laughs> while uh dewey is trying to find sydney's dad and he sees that he never checked into his hotel, hotel. maybe it's dad doing Never for a moment did I ever believe it was dead. I mean, there's a certain point during this movie where everyone's a suspect, right? Like, is did Dewey do it? Is he the one doing it? Is it the Fonz? Nope, he died. It's not him. Nope, he. they definitely got him. I love, love this scene because Tatum is with Sydney at the police station. She's getting fed up. She sees Sydney's 
tire. She's like, that's it, Deputy Doofus. We're leaving. And Dewey's like, and Dewey's like, mom what did says, mom say? Mom, mom said, said when I wear this uniform. <laughs> I'm a man of the law. I'm a man of the law. That was it. <laughs> you treat me like great. a man of the law. <laughs> That made me laugh. I like and it just, I don't know if you noticed, but on his desk, <laughs> he the hat perched on his computer to show how immature he was, I guess. It was a uh, federal breast inspector, like FBI, oh and it had like two boobies on it. <laughs> That's all the boob action you get in this movie. All There's like, a Dunkin' Donuts bag on his I did notice the Dunkin' well, Donuts. Yeah. Yes, there was. Okay, so this is interesting. When they go back to Tatum's house. Well, um, first they run into Gail, right? Sneaking out. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. They do run into Gail and something big happens. Sydney punches her in the face. She's like, how's the book she sales going? Dexter. <laughs> She's like, how's the book sales going? Great. I'll, su- I'll send you a copy. And then boom, punches her so in the catty. face. So catty. Yeah. So catty. She had it coming. Oh, so when they get to Tatum's house, the bedspreads that they're laying on, that was my bedspread in the 90s. Oh, that's awesome. Really? Yes, it was. I was like, oh my gosh, that was my bedspread. I did wonder why Tatum had two twin beds in her room when it's just her and Dewey, and Dewey clearly had his own room. Because then when they have guests over, they can kick her out and have guests to sleep in there. It's not unheard of. This is where the movie tries to throw a suspicion about Tatum and Dewey. Mm Because Tatum is like, I don't know. She's very like, I knew there had to be something about Billy. He's just too perfect. Like, what? So you're trying to get rid of his girlfriend? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sydney receives a call from Ghostface at the house. And when they get Dewey to come to the phone quick, Dewey doesn't exit his room until after <laughs> Ghostface hangs up. And this is where he... <laughs> Dewey puts on his false bravado and he picks up the phone and he's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> he's been working out, y'all. Yes, yes. <laughs> and this is, to what your point, Tom, the next day of school, people are running around in ghost face outfits, scaring the bejesus out of Sydney. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Dewey's basically her police escort now. Like, he runs into Gail, like, just leave her, well... Sydney approaches Gail outside of school and says, do you really think Cotton is innocent? And Gail's like, yes, you falsely identified him. His story hasn't changed once. Mm-hmm. And she goes into school upset, and Dewey's like, just leave her alone. She's a kid. And this is where a little bit of flirting happens. Mm-hmm. That, that whole thing about how her program is like most popular with, gu- boy, with guys between... Uh, 18 and 25. And Dewey's like, I'm 26. 18 and I, 24. Yeah. And he's 18 and, and 24. He's 25. So she just missed his age bracket. Yes. But he says I was 24 for 24 a whole, for a whole year. year. Which is cute. I like that. <laughs> that was cute. At the same time. <laughs> what is not cute is Billy got released because his phone records were clear. And this guy has no tact. He confronts her in hallway in the hallway like, your mom's dead. My mom left my dad. And I he got over it. He made the comment that she needed to get over it. It's been a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, funny story, Julia, since you've never seen the sequels. You know how Dewey makes a comment about how, just think who's going to play you in a movie. So in the, mo- yeah. <laughs> in the sequel, 
the movie Stab is coming out based on the events of this film. And Sydney had sent this film with my luck, it'll be Tori Spelling. And sure enough, it is Tori Spelling playing her. And, oh, uh, that's a that's a good that's a good um good humored Tori Spelling yeah. to do that. Yeah, they but they show this clip, this scene acted by Tori Spelling and uh, Owen, not Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson in the sequel. It's basically this <gasps> hallway Wilson. scene and they totally make it corny. Like Luke Wilson's like, your mom died. That's the way the cookie crumbles. And like, it's just this awful, like cheesy horrors. It's so funny. <laughs> um, but Sydney goes to cry in the bathroom where what happens in the bathroom, Julia? She's upset. And so the minute she hears voices, she gets into a stall and these nasty catty girls are talking about what a loser she is and how she's probably making it up and like all this stuff, totally trash talking her, which doesn't help her mental state like one little bit. Well, those girls leave. And so she comes out of the stall and she's wiping her tears away and she hears something, but no, it was nothing, but no, I heard something else. And then you see, brown boots that I try to identify later on in the next scene <laughs> come down in a stall that was previously empty and then the robes which was a delightful touch by the way the way the black robes dropped down it was wonderful it was great and so it's Ghostface, and he tries to kill her in the bathroom and so she runs out and is obviously distraught um, and this is where the Fonz gets it, right? This is where the Fonz is confronting two kids in his office, calling them little, little <laughs> and like, you're both expelled, get out! Hold scissors, <laughs> scissors up to them in a threatening manner. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which I think, I think it felt like they were trying to at least allude to the fact that he might be the killer, right? Yes. I think that's what was going on. And th- this is also where school gets let out. The, they, the cops and do a curfew. They let out school. And of course, kids are excited. Like, who cares if they have a serial killer on the loose? School's out. School's canceled. So That's Stu funny. is going to have a party on his house. But <laughs> Fonz is left alone in the school. The Fonz is left alone in the school. Combing his hair in the mirror. You see the Fonzie leather jacket in the closet, which is a nice touch. He hears noises in the hallway. We see Wes Craven cameo wearing the Freddy Krueger outfit as a janitor sweeping the hallway. And then uh, Ghostface, it turns out, is in the office and kills the phones. And this scene was added because the studio made Wes Craven at it because there was no murder for like 50 pages in the script. They're like, you have to add a murder. You have to kill someone. <laughs> so Wes Craven killed is the principal. Is it a comedy or is it a horror flick? Make your mind up, studio. <laughs> So Wes Craven killed the principal, which he said solved a script problem because it gave him a reason to get all the kids to leave the party later on because he had no real reason to get them out of the party <laughs> later on. So Tatum and Sydney are going shopping for booze for the party. And Sydney is a little upset because Tatum is kind of buying into the story. Like you can only hear the Richard Gear gerbil story so many times before you start to believe it that, uh, you know, <laughs> cotton weary may be innocent and the killer may be out there somewhere. And, um, this is where Dewey talks to his boss who, um, says, Hey, we pulled the cell phone records of 
Sydney's dad. He never left town, and we're trying to look for him. They, at this point, are all in on Sydney's dad is the killer, and we got to find him before he finds his daughter. And then we get the video store scene with <laughs> with Randy, and there's a rush in the mass murder section because, of course, there is. People are morbid. Murders in town? Go rent a horror movie before curfew. That's right. Mm-hmm. And this is where I suspected that all three of them were in on it together. Yeah. Oh, Randy, Stu, and Billy? Yeah. Yeah, like not as heavy on Jamie Kennedy, but like enough to where I was like, I think it's all three of them. Probably. It's definitely Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich. But Jamie Kennedy, I got a pretty good feeling that it's also Jamie Kennedy. And they like threaten him in the movie store, essentially. Yeah, and he's like... He's like, hey, I'll admit it. If this is a scary movie, I'd be the first suspect. <laughs> like, he just plays it off. Um, and this scene really made me miss the days of Blockbuster and going on a crowded Friday oh, night. Oh, man, didn't uh, it? Yeah, it did. It really mm-hmm. did. And this brings us to the big party scene. Now, Stu's house, which is a house they have the party at, they're doing a promotion for Scream 5 where you can stay in it, Airbnb style. Ooh. And it looks awesome. But David Arquette's doing it. Looks pretty cool. Huh. Very nice. But Dewey, the irresponsible cop, takes his sister and Sydney to the party where there's a bunch of underage drinking. And unbeknownst to them, Gail follows in her van. So he has mm-hmm. to act cool. Like like not not busting the kids for drinking, right? <laughs> yeah, he takes her to the party to check on things. He's like, you're underage, son. <laughs> and he's like, nah, I'm just kidding. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> and uh meanwhile gail has a what is it, a hidden camera she puts on the tv so she can mm-hmm. spy on what's going on in the party but with a horribly inconvenient 30 second delay Chekhov's gun be- 30 seconds because the minute she gets back to the van and kenny says it's 30 seconds that is a really long so time delay. 30 seconds yeah. is a really long time if you think about it I'm going to say it's the 90s and maybe technology wasn't as good. I just mean like I think I think they probably could have gotten by with saying a 15 second delay because when you see that yep. play out later on like it was not 30 seconds. Yeah. That's a long time. So this is the garage scene, right? Tatum goes to the yes. garage to get more beer. She gets murdered. She gets she's in the fridge getting beer. Door closes. Locked, beer in hand, <laughs> tries to open door, door won't open. She dies in a horrific way. And she, yeah, well, it's not like she just dies. I mean, obviously, Ghostface is in there. And she dies in the garage door going up. Yeah, the, the cat, cat door. door. I'm going like, to tell you this right now. You weren't going to fit through that, girlfriend. I don't think a garage door could do that much damage to a person before the chain or something would break, right? She she's trying to flee. She's trying to flee from Ghostface, and she's trying to make a mad dash out of a, a cat door. It's not like it's a dog door. It's not like it's big. It's a cat door, and like her head fits through or whatever. Okay, so initially, initially the script called for him just bringing the door down on her and crushing her that way. Then on location, when they found this house, it actually had a cat door. So they were like, "Oh, that would be cool. Have her go through the cat door." And it turned out that. Uh, Rose McGowan was small enough she could fit through what? the cat door, so they had to s- staple her into the cat door. So when they had her raised up, she would actually not fall out of it. She would stay in. Wow. I mean, yes. it is a delightful bit of of 
terror that goes through you because you're like, she could fit through that door if she had like more time on her side, which she definitely doesn't. And how scary that would be to not see him coming at you because you're stuck in a door. Like, I thought she was going to get like stabby stabbed and then the door was going to do the final thing. The door, but she just, the door, the door did took it. Care of the problem. No stabby stab. So I was. I'm yeah, trying. he kind of had he kind of had one of those inquisitive looks where he cocks his head a bit and he just hits the garage door to go up. Yeah, like let's work smarter, not harder, people. <laughs> and but again, I go back to when Sydney answered the phone in her house, knowing a killer is on the loose and played with him. Tatum's first reaction when she sees Ghostface is like she thinks it's somebody. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, shirt. yeah, it's somebody dressing up. She does. She smack talks him a little bit. That was definitely Skeetle Rich, by the way. I think so, too. I think that was Skeetle Rich. I don't think that was Lillard. Yeah, because at the time, Lillard is still in the house because Jamie Kennedy is about to explain the rules. Oh, that's right. That's true. And Julia, you said this was an awesome scene earlier. So why don't you tell us what happened to this scene? This scene was great. Okay. So they're watching Halloween, right? It's Halloween? Yes. Yep. Okay. The, what sets up this scene is... The drunken guys are like, when are we going to see Jamie Lee's breasts? And we get a Christmas movie reference here because Jamie with Jamie Kennedy says, not until Trading Places, which we covered. That's right. Yep. That's right. Not a Christmas movie, but that's right. Okay. <laughs> so we have a group of guys and girls around drinking, watching scary movies. So it's a raucous setting. And so Randy steps up because he takes this very seriously, very seriously. And he says there are certain rules one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Of course, everybody boos. He goes, no, big no, big no, no, no. Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. More booing and cheering and raising bottles. Nev Campbell and Skeet Ulrich are getting it on. Right, because Billy showed up at the party, kept switching between them doing exactly everything Jamie Kennedy was saying you can't do if you want to survive. That's right. That's right. Um, And then Randy goes on to say, it's a sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstance say, I'll be right back because you won't be back. And Stu stands up. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. And everybody (laughs) goes crazy. And that made me laugh. (laughs) And Randy's like, Randy says, you know what? I'll see you in the garage with a knife. I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife. (laughs) He says, see, you push the laws and you end up dead. Okay, I'll see you in the kitchen with a knife. (laughs) And it is Um, a great scene because the movie knows what it is. And this is where we see our first 30-second delay, right? Because Gail and Kenny are watching this in the van and they looked bored out of their minds. Like, this is what they're spending their their night doing. And Dewey shows up at the van and it's like, hey, I got a report. There's an abandoned car down the road. Want to come investigate it with me? Mm-hmm. And Gail does. Yes, there is a serial killer on the loose in a strange car that we don't know what's going on. Why don't I take this young defenseless reporter with me to investigate? And you know what? Let's not bring a car. Let's on not a bring lovely a car evening because, walk. Because, you know, I have a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, she doesn't know he's not the killer or vice versa. <laughs> but... Nope. Jamie Kennedy at the house receives a call that Principal Himbury was found dead and hung from the goalposts. Yeah, like that's next level. Yeah. It's not just stabby stabby. It's going back to Drew Barrymore, right? 
yeah, who was hung by the tree, who from the tree. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the people leave the party like, let's go take a look before they get him down, which was morbid. Let's go see it. And they're driving drunk down the road and nearly run over Dewey and Gail, who Dewey pushes her off the road. They go tumbling down and he lands on top of her like a romantic comedy. And there's some smooching. He says how, something about how beautiful she looks, and she leans up and, and kisses then she him. Notices the she car. makes the mm-hmm. first move, mm-hmm. and then cool. she notices the car, which Dewey immediately recognizes as Neil Prescott's. Oh my gosh, he never made it to his destination. Is this why they couldn't get him the entire time? So they have to get back to the party because Sydney's in danger. Which, when right. forgetting to mention, it is the one year anniversary of her mom's murder this evening. So Sydney is. Sydney and Billy are in their post-coital, uh, they're in the bedroom getting dressed. And Sydney yeah, is there is no a... post-coital glow. She is, like, still straight up super, like, sketch about him. Yeah. She, she, what does she ask him? What's, what did she ask him? Out of the Who blue. did you call with your one call at the cop station? And she's, he's like, yeah, I can't believe you still think it's me. And she yeah. says, well, I think it would be pretty clever if you used your one call to call me to get suspicion off of yourself which a it would but b not from a police station where they're probably monitoring that call anyway <laughs> but he's like he's wounded he is wound. he cut real deep you see what i'm doing here he's cut real deep by that statement until then he is literally cut real deep because of what happens ghostface comes in and Stabs slash him. well Billy turns toward him. Yeah, he turns his back towards Sydney, and we see Ghostface yeah. allegedly slap him, uh, stab which, him. Oof. Which just reinforced, like, nope. Now there's two yep. people for sure. Because that's the first kill in the movie. We don't see, like, that knife that's entering right. the body. And that's right. he turns back around covered in blood it's and like, collapses. Yeah. And Sydney and Ghostface go on a chase through the house. She jumps out a window. I love she locks herself in the po- empty police van, but she can't oh find the goodness. keys. And Ghostface dangles the keys through the window, nice. which I loved. And uh, nice. the doors keep unlocking, and she keeps trying to touch it while behind her, the trunk lifts up unbeknownst to her. It was, was a good, good scene. That was a good scene. Sydney goes running to the news van for help mm-hmm. for Kenny. And Kenny lets her in. He's like, no, no, everything's fine. Look, and he points delay. at the TV. Yep. 30 second delay because we see Jamie Kennedy in a bit of meta humor saying, Jamie, Uh behind you, behind you, because Michael Myers is coming up behind Jamie Lee Curtis on the screen as Ghostface (laughs) is coming up behind Jamie Kennedy. And to Kenny's credit, he goes into hero mode. He hops out of the van to run up to the house and save him. But then he's like, 30 second delay and Ghostface comes and slits his throat. Right there. Not good. He turns around to make sure he looks at Sydney though as he's dying, right? He wants to make sure she gets to see the blood again on the anniversary. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so she he can see the gaping wound. That's right. <laughs> Sydney crawls out through a cat-sized door in the back of the van, so we know yes. she fits. She can fit. She can fit through that door. <laughs> <laughs> and Ghostface chases her again. This is when Dewey and Gale show up. Dewey goes mm-hmm. to the house to figure things out. Yeah. And he just, like, goes down immediately. And I was super bummed about that. 
and Gail goes into the van to call 911, and she turns on, like, blood is dripping down <laughs> the windshield. Also a nice bit. Also a yeah, nice and bit. She, and she starts speeding. She starts driving the car. And she's like, Kenny, I love you. Get, get off the windshield. And uh, she loses control of the van. And it goes sliding off the road into a ditch, which yeah, Courtney Cox hard, really, hurt, really hurt herself. Because it was just supposed to hit the tree on the side of the road. But she actually spun off the road and down that hill and hurt herself filming that scene. I mean, is that the final take they took? Because it looked realistic. It was the final take they took. That's fantastic. Turned out really well. Nice effect. Yeah, Dewey goes down in the house. Sydney runs into the house. And this is your conflicted moment. Because Randy and Stu are both running up to her like, Sid, it was him. No, it was him. And she's like, screw you both. She didn't say screw. She slams the door. She has a gun. And this is when Billy comes down the stairs like, Sid, Sid, give me the gun. He opens the door and lets Randy in. And Randy's like, Stu's gone crazy! And he's gone mad! And Billy's like, we all go a little mad sometimes. And shoots Randy. Yep. And he shoots Randy. And even though he's like three feet away, he He hits him in the shoulder. And Randy goes down. Yeah. Non-fatal wound. So part of me was still like, that's a non-fatal. Is he in on it? I don't think so. Right. Sydney tries to run away from Stu, from Billy. Stu comes in, corners her in the kitchen. He has a voice box. Surprise, Sydney. Wait, before that, before that, Billy licked his finger, right? Oh, corn, corn syrup. syrup. Like the pig blood and mm. carry. Yep. That's right. Just clever. Clever. Mm-hmm. Um, Stu comes in. Surprise, Sydney. And they corner her in the kitchen and explain their whole master plan and why they're doing this. And we find out Stu is basically like a weakling who's come to peer pressure and is really crazy. But Billy actually has a motive. He's like, your mother slept with my father and my mother walked out. Yep. And she's shocked by that. Yeah. She is shocked by it. Crap. I didn't know that. That's bad. So they're going to kill her and make it look like daddy did it. Cause they pulled daddy out of the closet bound and gagged. Oh, and Lillard uh, has gone full Lillard by this point. Oh. Full '90s Lillard. Oh uh, yeah, okay. well, I loved it. I loved. It. Oh, I, I didn't hate it, but Lillard. like he knows what he is, and he's, he went and did it. Well, especially because they want to make it look like they were survivors of this massacre, so right. they stab one another. Now, in my head, I'm thinking, why didn't you do stab one another after you killed Sydney and Dad? That would make <laughs> a lot more sense. But Billy goes too deep. He like Sydney says. You two are psychos. You watched one too many movies. He's like, no, Sydney. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. And he takes a knife and really stabs Stu. And this is where Matthew Lillard really starts to get a little woozy here. Yeah. <laughs> and he my stabs My parents Bill. are going to be so mad at me is one of my favorite lines. I love that. They're going to be so mad at me. <laughs> and they stab one another. <laughs> and, uh, they're gonna kill Sydney, and that's when a gunshot goes. Uh, no, a gunshot doesn't go off. Gail comes in mm. with a gun, and she's like, "How about this for a movie?" Reporter left for dead finds a gun, comes in, and saves the day. And Billy's like, "I know something you don't." And she left the safety on, and he knocks her out. And when he takes the gun and is gonna shoot her, 
Sydney has disappeared. Stu's like, uh, Billy. And instead of just shooting her, then turning around, he's like, uh, Houston, we have a problem here. And (laughs) Sydney's gone. And the two of them are freaking out. Mm Mm-hmm. And she calls, and she clearly has a voice generator, and she's like, do you like scary movies? And they're like, I'm gonna kill you! He has Stu, put Stu on the phone to distract her, and this is where he says that line, Julia, that you really like. Did you really call the cops? <laughs> yeah, because it's so it's a great scene. I mean, it really is, because it goes back and forth between Skeet Ulrich, like, angrily grabbing the phone and, like, saying mean things to her, and then giving the phone back to Matt Lillard and him being like, did you really call the cops? Like, really? <laughs> parents are gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> and so uh, Stu is uh, Billy is going crazy. He he goes into the hallway. He thinks he hears something in the closet, so he opens the closet. And Sydney has put on the full ghost face outfit and comes charging out of the closet with an umbrella, an which umbrella. is this is what this is what a traumatized human being in her position would be doing right now, right? Right, I so I question. I told. I get why they did it, but like, what if the cops had rolled up in there in that moment? Right, like yeah. that would be a real problem. <laughs> it would be a really hard thing to get out of in court. But she takes it off like a second later. This Billy scream of pain is real here because Ski Ulrich has surgery, and when Nev Campbell came out of the closet, she missed the protective padding and like oh. jabbed it into his chest where he had surgery. So he goes down oh. with a real scream. Um, oh. Wes Craven kept it in because he was like, yeah, awesome reaction. Yeah, I keep <laughs> uh, Stu comes running out. Sydney throws a TV on his head. He electrocutes himself to death. <laughs> uh, Billy gets up, is about to kill her, and Gail shoots him. And he's mm-hmm. like, I remember the safety that time. You... Uh (laughs) and we find out randy is still alive the three of them are standing over billy and randy's like careful this is where the killer comes back for one last scare and he does he does he's like pops or and billy pops up and uh they shoot him in the head she yeah puts one in his head and she's like not in my movie not my movie not my movie (laughs) we fade out the sun has risen nev uh gail weathers is getting her shot uh, we see Dewey rolled out alive from the house, for that. which they threw in last minute after test screenings and people were disappointed Dewey died. Yeah. And uh, Gail leads us out talking about the Woodsboro murder massacre and the end. What a ride. What a ride. It just drips in 90s, which was kind of hard to get past. It hasn't aged very well. Uh, well, the storyline aged pretty darn good, aside from technology. Um I really liked it wasn't straight slasher. I liked all of the little tids and bits back to classic horror movies that even not having seen all of them, I could still latch on to. And I, I mean, I can greatly appreciate the complexity of having more than one murderer and probably not realizing that in a normal situation, watching the movie fresh. Mm-hmm. Like what a surprise that would have been. So yeah, I liked it. Didn't love it, but liked it for sure. What about you, Tom? Seeing it for the first time in, what, 25 years? What did you think watching it this time? Uh, It was cheesy. It was hokey. Uh, Steve Ulrich and Matthew Lilliard were pretty obnoxious. Steve (laughs) Ulrich? Is that his father? Sorry. Steve (laughs) Ulrich and Matthew Lilliard were kind of obnoxious, but 
<laughs> it was funny and uh, an enjoyable October movie. Yeah. To your point, Julia, the bit that aged it the worst for me wasn't even the technology. It was, you have to remember, this was like a pre-Columbine world, right? Where schools were safe. And Dewey has that line to Sydney. Don't worry, Sydney. This You'll is school. You'll here. be safe here, which does yeah. not. <laughs> that's not aged You're well. You never know that hasn't aged well. Uh-uh. But I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was funny. I mean, mm-hmm. we got multiple ke- people commenting like it's a zeitgeist film, right? Like mm-hmm. it was part of the national discourse and zeitgeist. And it, you said it earlier, Julia, it, will, it went in making fun of horror canon and it became mm-hmm. one of the horror greats. Mm-hmm. So. Yep, for sure. I, I enjoyed it though. Great and movie I'm to glad- watch in a group. Yeah, it's a great movie to watch with your friends, making fun of the scary movie rules. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad both of you didn't hate it. So that me too. Me <laughs> so I am going to give this movie a nine. Not perfect for me, and it loses it just for not being Halloween either. Despite always being seen on TV around Halloween, it's one of those things we talked about last week. There are not a lot of Halloween Halloween movies. They show a True. lot of just scary movies around Halloween. So I'm giving it a nine, though. I love it. What are you guys giving it? Six. 6.75. Which gives us an average of 7.25. Nice. Not bad. I am happy with that. Did you all see the question I asked on social media today? <laughs> we got a few answers, and I kind of want you guys to answer it too. I had asked, we all know Randy's rules to successfully survive a horror movie. What are your rules to successfully survive listening to or appearing on an episode of Tis the Podcast? our good friend matt yurik of tgi podcast wrote one always be prepared for anthony to blindside you with a who is your favorite elf question that was my first one yep two be aware that you'll probably spend at least half an hour just chatting as if you're catching up with old friends before the recording actually starts and three tom is the worst winky tongue face thanks matt (laughs) <laughs> and, then, and then we got an answer from Danielle Essery as well. And she wrote, I can listen to it anytime, but feels right when it's cooler out. So in the summer months, a rule would be listen in the morning before it gets hot. Then you can pretend it's the burn months. I'd like that. Mm-hmm. And she also wrote, another rule should be to be prepared to want to listen to more Christmas music, watch a Christmas movie, or crave a peppermint mocha even in the off season. Oh, lovely. All of that is good. What about you? Do you have any rules for people who want to guest on our show? I would say be prepared to bathe in our virginity. Your virginity. Not yours. You're doing zero bathing in your virginity. <laughs> Tom and I, however. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, um, be prepared for Anthony. He's much more vulgar and offensive. Uh, a lot of that gets edited out. Also, did you guys answer Tom's question from last week? Your worst Christmas gift? Because people finally did. I saw that. I still can't think of a terrible Christmas gift that I got. Listener Jennifer Caleri wrote, A pack of discontinued slash returned way too big granny panties from an aunt when she was nine or ten. I was mortified. Luckily, I wasn't alone. Another cousin received something very similar. That's gotta take the cake. She's like Aunt Bethany a little, I'm guessing. Danielle wrote, Worst gift I've ever received, a tea tree oil-themed spa set, including bath oil, lotion, and face cream that I tried all at once. It's a great time to discover that I'm allergic to all of it. No fault to the gift giver, though. Oh, no. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Merry Christmas. You're allergic to tea tree. She went, like, full on, and that was quite a time to realize you're allergic to it. Bummer. 
And Danny Kimball wrote, worst gift ever was my dad got me something he really wanted, which is one of those musical robots that played Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Gave it to him for Christmas? Yep. Oh, that's dirty. I do that, but with Lego stuff that Ellie wants, and I just don't want to spend the money on myself. It works with kids. <laughs> there's other. There's one other piece of feedback I want to read, because somebody answered, cast Sesame Street, Christmas Carol. For us. Ooh. Friend of the family wrote, Scrooge would be Bert. Marley would be the Count because he takes great joys in counting oh. and would take great joy in telling how many ghosts would visit Scrooge. And that's spot yes. on. That is spot on. Fred would be Ernie and he would have a rubber ducky instead of a wife. Ghost of Christmas Past would be Elmo. Ghost of Christmas Present would be Cookie Monster. Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, Snuffleupagus, because when he first appeared on the show, nobody really could see him except Big Bird. Oh, I didn't know that. The charity solicitors would be the Two-Headed Monster. Old Joe would be Oscar the Grouch. Bob would be Big Bird. Mrs. Cratchit would be Harry Monster. The Cratchit kids would be Rosita, Zoe. And Tiny Tim would be Grover. Not quite as tiny as, say, Elmo. But there are some who take Scrooge's side where Elmo's life at stake. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're not wrong, right? They're not wrong. And the maid would be Telly Monster because Telly Monster has anxiety and would be really frightened by Scrooge's new lease on life when he woke up and freaked out. That's funny. Ooh, that's good. That was good. He was really good. So thanks for writing in with that. Where can more people give us feedback like that or comment on Scream or their worst Christmas gifts? Well, I just want to say that was way better and way more thought out than anything that we said. And if you have better answers than we do, please supply them at tisthepodcast.com slash Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook group, Instagram, and tell us what you think. Especially our Facebook group. Our Facebook group is really fun and the most active of all our places. And It really is. Facebook kind of killed Reddit. Where else can they get to this podcast content, Julia? Well, if everybody is enjoying the Halloween stuff we've been covering lately, there is actually another place where you can get a bunch more Halloween content, um, non-Christmas content, Christmas content of a different fair um, that's still us, um, us and friends. So if you go to tisthepodcast.com backslash Patreon, that gives you a door into our paid content. So for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to anything in the Patreon vault. There is a ton of stuff in there, not just for Tis the Podcast fans, but Anthony has lots of episodes and Tom has lots of episodes with other podcast hosts like Jerry D, if you know that name around the podcast, um, as well as other people. Um, there's a ton of content in there that's been stacking up since the birth of Tis the Podcast. So if you're interested, check that out. You get in with a dollar a month, but the more you give, the more you get. Um, there's even an opportunity at $25 a month where you can pick a movie and come and host an episode with us of that movie of your choice. So Check it out if it's interesting to you. Um, there's definitely stuff there, but we'll always be here on your free feed. And not only just Mondays this year, but Thursdays for the rest of the year as well. At least until December 23rd, which is the end of it. Um, yes, every Thursday, I wrote a Christmas book, and every Thursday a new chapter is dropped in your feeds. Um, Tom or Julia or myself or another Christmas podcast host or one of our listeners and friends read the chapter and release it as an audio i am not only hopeful but assured that next week we are gonna we are probably gonna have a perfect 10 in our halloween feeds because we are covering garfield's halloween adventure and funnily enough somebody commented on a thread on our twitter page from like a year ago where people were saying garfield gets overlooked with the peanuts but they were arguing garfield has the better holiday specials which is interesting Mm mm-hmm 
And the week after that, we're covering Halloween, 1978's version, which we probably should have done before Scream, but I wanted Halloween to fall nearer to Halloween. Um, but Ron Hogan, a.k.a. President Hot Dog, and Jay Skipworth from Filmstrip Podcast will be coming on for that one. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And you know what else is a lot of fun? And just as scary, kind of, mm-hmm. as the movie we cover tonight is the fact there are only 1,824 hours until Christmas. That is 76 days, y'all. That's only 10 weeks until Christmas. It's only 20 days until Halloween. We're under three weeks until Halloween, which is crazy, which means we're under three weeks until we decorate for Christmas. Yeah, man. So do your homework. Watch Garfield's Halloween Adventure and Halloween 1978, and we will speak to y'all next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, (laughs) y'all. Wasted. <laughs>